Salutations out there, listeners. This is the Roll for Initiative podcast, issue number 17. I'm your host, Ian Vince, along with DM Jason and DM Nick. Nick, how you doing this week? Pretty good. I'm doing all right. How you doing this week? Good. And uh, Jason, who's silent in the background at the moment, but he's ready to talk. How you doing, Jason? Hey, it's been a really good week and uh, big news in gaming here in New York City. The 20-sided store has opened up over in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Uh, we'll be talking about it more next week, but I just wanted to kind of get that out there as the big gaming news that's happened here this week. Oh, cool. We'll have to definitely hear more about that as time progresses. So, website, rfipodcast.com, uh, rfistaff at gmail.com. You can email us at, call us for a voicemail, 206-279-3272. Click on the Google voicemail. Or you can go to facebook.com slash rfipodcast. And speaking of the Facebook site, we're going to be talking about, uh, Jason, we spoke about last week, T-shirts, right? Yes, and the T-shirts are ready, so uh, you can go take a look on the website. They're, they're up there now. And uh, we're going to give one away. Yeah. So basically, the, the, from when the podcast is placed up and ready to download, yeah, which would probably be around Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on when it's edited. Uh, you have a chance to comment on the Facebook site. Anybody that leaves a comment between when the show is published until Sunday, the 23rd, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, the 23rd, by noon time, Eastern Standard Time, will be eligible for a uh, free T-shirt. Jason will do a live rolling on the next podcast because every person will be assigned a number. And that person that gets rolled up, we'll, we'll contact them and give them their free shirt. Yeah, so you get to hear how we figure out you know, <laughs> what kind of a roll it is in case it's 47 <laughs> people, because I can't find my D47. But I'll lend you um, mine, don't worry. What, yeah, but one thing, uh, so for people who are commenting on this, uh, what we're going to do, uh, li- like you're saying, what we're going to do is assign a number to each person that we see comment between the time the podcast goes up and Sunday at noon. That gives us a few hours to you know, work out the numbers uh, before we actually start rolling. And please don't just comment, I want a T-shirt, because that's kind of boring. Uh, you know, we're not going <laughs> to punish anybody for making a, you know, we're not going to like leave you out if your comment is just, I want a T-shirt. It's just, we'll be kind of sad. You know, it'd be, it'd be nicer if people actually went and commented about things that were from the show. You know, whether it's articles on the site or stuff we talk about on the show, whatever it is, just go about your normal way and, you know, we'll roll based on who leaves comments. Uh, yeah, uh, so I mean, if you want to even go the extra mile and uh, even leave a voicemail, that'll maybe give you a bonus point in Jason's eye or my eye. You never no. know. No, no. I'm okay. not giving any plus ones to hit. All right, so uh, to kick things off, I want to begin by wishing a happy birthday. Uh, it's kind of unusual. We don't usually wish people happy birthday on the show but uh, i want to wish a happy birthday to max's wife suzanne Uh, happy birthday 
it was her 30th birthday last week, and uh, Max wrote a really nice uh, email to me over over on Dragon's Foot. And it turns out that he is uh, not only a listener to the podcast, but he was a reader of my old magazine, Permission, which I thought was kind of a cool uh, crossover. Cool. Mm. And he says that his uh, that Suzanne uh, wa- rolls her eyes at him a lot while we're on the air and says that this is the weirdest, nerdiest, most intricate thing ever. So, uh, But I think she's <laughs> secretly listening. And we love listening. it. <laughs> we think she's secretly listening in. So happy that. birthday, Suzanne. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Suzanne. Happy birthday, Suzanne. Comic book guy voice for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, Jason, you wanted to mention something about the articles on the website too. Oh yeah, so uh, we got a lot of new good stuff going up. Um, so there's a, there's a new uh, uh, plus two to save from mm-hmm. from Todd. So this week, oh. uh, what's what's up there right now is an article called "Who Am I," and it's all about secondary skills. A really good look. You're Jason. At, uh, sorry. You're Jason. Oh right, <laughs> the, the article is called <laughs> "Who Am I?" Uh, it's a really good look at secondary skills. You know how how they're used in the game. Maybe a little bit uh, more in depth look at that. And you know, keep in mind that plus two to save is a weekly uh, feature, so it'll be a new a new one up uh, in just a couple of days. Very and cool. then also, uh, Matt Matt uh, and I'm I'm actually realized that I don't know if his last name is pronounced Ide or Ide. So Matt, I'm really sorry because we've only talked by email. But uh, he has a great new article up called Go With The Flow Gaming. Cool. A look at okay, uh, how to cool. handle rules kind of from our talk last week about uh, problem players. He's talking about rules lawyers and uh, you know how to keep your game flowing when uh, a few too many players start pulling out the charts and arguing over things and uh, trying to slow the thing down. We killed them. Kill them. <laughs> and, uh, That's my job. And then PC Buzz has been putting up some great reviews of the uh, Shadowy Paths modules, which are you know over available at Dragon's Foot. And he's got the first two up so far, uh, Temple of Dianetchet and Horror of Spider Point. And uh, number three is going up soon. So lots oh, nice. of great articles on the site. Just want to also take a moment to say that there's no need to uh, send an email. We do realize the article is there pending. Just takes a few minutes to review and uh, publish it. That's all. Yeah, that's yeah, we'll uh, that's well. No, I'll I'll take the uh, I'll take the bullet for that one because it's it's my job to make sure that they're proofread and up. And uh, sometimes yes, fall on your sword now. <laughs> take a little while. So, uh, but but we will uh, try to keep getting these up in a timely manner because we have some great writers and uh, you know really enjoy having them. And yeah, it yeah. just adds so much to the website. Just knowing that our that the role for initiative community is growing. Hmm. The what do we call them? The RFIs or the RFI Nation? RFI sure, Nation. Yeah. RFI Nation. RFI Nation sounds good. Okay, well, um, we're moving on. We actually do have a uh, sad moment to talk about, and uh, Jason, you want to take that first few moments? Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody, uh, by the time you hear this podcast, it'll be. Uh, sometime now, and I think the news is around about uh, Frank Frazetta, who passed away uh, a mm-hmm. little over a week ago at the age of 82. And, um, I mean, it's just a major loss. When it comes to fantasy art, losing Frank Frazetta was like what it was like to lose Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, you know, on the gaming side of it. He really was the father of it all. Yeah. Um, 
you know, uh, Frank did uh, he 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 began his work in comics and movie posters, and uh, you know, did his work adorned countless yeah. books. Uh, an entire generation of Hollywood movies owe their entire look. To, the the whole sword and sorcery genre basically owes its look to what Frank Frazetta um, created. And uh, there's some, you know, there's some great things out there. I mean, I think it's it's really worthwhile to go back and take a look at. Uh, there, there's a good movie uh, called uh, Painting with Fire. Which uh, I think you can get it on Netflix. I know you can get it on iTunes. Um, yeah. You can probably find it at your local video store if you have a really cool video store. No. Absolutely recommend people go out and take a look at this. You get to see Frank and his family all the way through the movie. If there's ever a movie made about Frank Frazetta's life, a fic, you know, a retelling, they've got to have Robert De Niro play him. Really? Because Robert De Niro? Really? He is Frank Frazetta is just this, this uh, Brooklyn. You know, uh, native son. He's sort of like this cross between, I think, Robert De Niro and maybe Polly Walnuts or something, right? Oh boy. Uh, he was uh, he was this really amazing athlete too. I mean, he was actually drafted for the major leagues and decided not to go for it. And it's one of the reasons that his paintings were always so um, dynamic. He never painted from photos or sketches or anything. He just went completely out of you know from what was in his mind. And it's because he just understood the body so well because he was an athlete that all of his paintings felt so real. Yeah, you're absolutely and, right on that. Yeah, it, it's just just unbelievable what his natural talent was. And uh, one other thing that was kind of um, interesting from having watched the movie myself recently, there was a little bit of talk about whether what he was doing was fine art. And kind of in... in uh, based on that you know what all fantasy artists do you know is this fine art and you heard a couple of uh, art critics come out and say well well not really fine art because he was just telling stories he was just illustrating and another person in the movie said well what do you think the entire uh, classical period of painting was it was telling stories you know usually from the bible but you know here's these fantasy artists doing the same sort of approach and it reminded me of the way that uh, maybe literary uh, snobs tend to talk about sci-fi or fantasy fiction. And it just really kind of uh, got me up in arms a little bit. And, and, and you realize that Frank Fazetta, and they said several times, many different people, he really is one of the most influential and important artists of the 20th century. And uh, his passing is a monumental moment in a very sad time. I have to agree. I mean, hmm. when I was looking through all this, just refreshing myself on just how much of an influence he was, he, like you said, he he defined the sword and sorcery genre by his look. And just the the attention to detail he had to the human body when you look at his artwork was just amazing it just moved you know, he, yeah. he didn't pose his characters they were he caught them in the middle of doing things yeah yeah absolutely absolutely just a giant yeah without him yeah. we wouldn't have some of the stuff we have today so yeah yeah i mean before some, he came along yeah. it was all of the the kind of artwork that dealt with uh fantasy or, or sword and sorcery stuff was you know like roman gladiators and very historical uh 
types of things. And all of a sudden you have this man come along who just springing forth from his imagination is these completely different worlds that no one had ever seen before. And even the authors themselves started getting influenced by the visions that that he had out there. Just completely genre-defining. Yeah. Well, we just take a moment to uh, reflect upon what his work and take a moment to uh, honor him on this show. And also, uh, Nick, you had another announcement of is older news now, but it's still very worth that, talking about. That's correct. In fact, I think it was because that the news is kind of so late is because of confirmation of this. Um, another sad bit of news, uh, John L. Eric Holmes, or J. Eric Holmes, as he's better known as, uh, passed away back in Mar- the March 20th. Uh, many of us maybe know him as the writer of the Holmes edition of the of the Dungeons and Dragons game, right? Um, who, you know, by doing that, really ushered in a lot of people into the hobby with that particular edition. I I'm lucky mm-hmm. enough at least to have a copy of it. Yeah, I got it through the Silver Anniversary Edition box set that TSR put out many years ago. Right, and they had a copy of the Holmes edition of D and D. They thought it was such an influence. On the game that they had to have it in that 25th anniversary box set, and just beyond that, I, uh, when I was looking a little bit more on on Doctor Holmes, as he's yeah, better known, yeah, because he was a he was, doctor. Yeah, yes, he was a professor yeah. of neurology at USC, and he also did some writing uh, for uh, in the style of Edgar Rice Burroughs. In fact, uh, he had Didn't some works with his he son. Yes, he did a book with his with uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' son uh, that was um, privately printed in '93 called "Red Axe of uh, Pellucidar," and uh-huh. the first book was called "Mayhars of Pellucidar," which was pu- published in '76, which had approval from the home uh, from the uh, Burroughs estate, being part of that whole um, uh, part of that whole world, that whole. Uh, I, I guess you call it that universe of of of, uh, of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs that he created, mm-hmm. and um, he did a few more things on in nonfiction and um, uh, doing some other uh, fictional works with a Boringer, the Halfling, and Zareth the Elf. He did some things in the seventies and eighties, but um, as most of us know, he was most known for that version of D&D that that came out I believe in 78 or 79 so yeah he will be sorely missed yeah we're really we're losing a lot of the people that are the connection between those er, you know the people that were influenced by the Conan and Tarzan era and that kind of brought us forward to where we are right now and it's it's important for us to go back and you know, maintain those connections and know where we came from Exactly. Knowing our roots help us keep this thing alive. And as in, uh, pay homage to them, we'll end this segment with a moment of silence going into Sage Advice. Sage Advice. So that brings us into Sage Advice. Uh, 
back onto the show track. We had a couple emails in this week. Uh, a lot of people wishing us a uh, great show. They found us. A uh, couple of things we want to point out. DM Paragon wrote in, and he answered our question about paladins and the were creature when we spoke about last episode. Uh, yeah. And he did say paladins lose their paladinhood. And he put a little duh there. That should be obvious yeah, to everybody. I'd agree with that. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> now, the player must change their alignment to the were creature's type. So the penalties mm-hmm. and... Uh, Alignment penalties do apply for voluntary changing yep. alignment and not working against their alignment back. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, adjust to characters. I'm uh, sorry, adjusting to characters. Uh, plus one to strength or dex, player's choice. Minus three to charisma, even though he abbreviated with a CHR. I usually abbreviate with CHA. Mm-hmm. They are done having <laughs> they're done having their mount as well. I, I was just noting that because usually I see a CHA. That's all. Yeah. Uh, natural animals will not come near the player as they're negative three to charisma. And um, to anyone using silver weapons against them, get a plus five to damage only. So already that's kind of interesting the way that he handles it when you think about how a druid would be affected by this, given their animal uh, friendship and all that. Ooh, true, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, I, I like this. This is a good way of uh, talking about handling this. We should probably uh, put his notes up on the uh, – actually, you know what? DM Paragon, if you're listening, maybe you could leave that as a comment on the article as well so everybody has that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different rules you can use here. I probably, I kind of like the Dragon Magazine rules where you get the opportunity to have alignment or, I mean, to have uh, mental or physical things happen differently. Uh, but, you know, everybody can a- a- address their own rules with these. Sure. I-, I like his a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I did notice one other person left a comment um, either on the Facebook site or on the website about the fact that the word weir in werewolf, etc., comes from the word for man. Mm-hmm. I haven't bothered to look up the etymology on that, but I believe it. That makes sense. Right. And okay. I think their point was that, therefore, it should only be humans. Um, sounds great, except for the fact that I would say that if you're looking at where words come from in English – Probably you're not going to find a lot of words coming from the word for a halfling because that wasn't a word. That wasn't a. That's, that's not a correct. Word. There's only humans in the real world, so yeah, men. But right, it's still a, it's still a point well taken, and I think that was a very fun thing last week when we realized that there's something we can genuinely just pick your rule because the books were different. Mm. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it, they conflicted. I also want to point out someone did put a comment in the Dragon's Foot forum on our. Uh, post topic saying I don't believe you that they're were sharks so <laughs> well then let's Monster find Manual that picture Monster, yep. I think he was just joking but it was kind of funny it's like I don't believe you <laughs> I still want the were flumph oh, yeah well you know when that movie uh, what's the one Sharktopus yes. comes out Sharktopus yeah. that, if, that, if that doesn't prove that sharks can be bred with other creatures what does Ugh. yeah <laughs> Okay, and uh, moving on, Darren F. wrote in and said, Where is it engraved in stone that all treasures have to be magical monetary statuary or jewelry-oriented? Why can't we have mundane treasures? And he's talking about the Dragon's Horde segment. Okay, yeah, I didn't understand that at first, but Dragon's Horde. Yeah, neither did I. Um, Okay, well, you know, that's a good point. Uh, I think... Actually, Vince, you were saying something about what a dragon would actually have. <laughs> well, yeah. Would a dragon have mundane items in their in their hoard? No. Honestly, uh, I have to say. They'd have a lot of gold, but I don't think we could do a long segment about the dragon's hoard. Gold pieces. What do you think of this Yeah, gold? that's just the name of the segment. doesn't mean we're talking about an actual dragon's hoard. <laughs> oh, I am. 
Well, I, have, I have a specific dragon in mind. Well, no, no. In the horde but, is usually generally magical items or of well worth items, so I wouldn't think. Uh, yeah, someone's I mean, there's laundry more, it's more interesting be... for us to come up with the ones that are magical because there's more to say about right. them. But, you know, uh, Darren, if you have some mundane treasures that you're thinking of, we love to hear ideas from people. So, uh, you know, if there's any yes. treasures somebody would like us particularly to talk about, please. Oh, he, hey. uh, he in his email. Hey, Jason? He... Yeah? Uh, kind of on that? There, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to even have a book. It's called The Mother of All Treasure Tables that was published a while back, about four years ago. And it has kind of some mundane items in it. But, mm-hmm. you know, like, I guess, a, like a elaborate studded leather tunic or kilt, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's worth 50 gold because of how it's elaborately, you know, made. So that's kind of a mundane item, I suppose. Yeah, well, very but, mundane. Well, Darren but did so go on. Darren did go on to list a whole bunch of items that I didn't include in the show notes. So I will forward on to you so you, yeah, so you can look yeah. at them. Name one. Let's hear one. Uh, I don't have the email open at the moment. Oh, okay. I apologize. Well, the, the, the kilt of diamonds will uh, only have so much to talk about it. But, uh, you know, may, maybe so. We'll take a look at it, and uh, I, I, we'll try to really think about how to uh, keep it interesting on the treasures. So Yeah. Okay, and then Nick, you want to take the last uh, one that we had written in? Oh yeah, we had oh, was it DM Ron? Right. He mm-hmm. uh, got us on uh, from his iPhone, <laughs> and he was talking about um, again with the uh, when we were talking about uh, paladins a while back and how they might not mingle with people or player characters of neutral or, or evil alignment. Well, right. he says, well, the DMG clearly states that the Paladin cannot frequent with evil characters. PCs do not walk around with neon signs <laughs> above their heads indicating their alignment. True. So he says, as a result, I think this presents tremendous role-play opportunities. As a DM, I would allow and teach the players a lot about alignments. Well, Good I agree to a point, but I think he forgot that the Paladin has that detect, detect evil 60-foot radius ability. So... <laughs> It kind of trumps that whole thing, don't it? Yeah, but <laughs> it kind of does. But you know, yeah. uh, well, first of all, I, I think he raises a really good point. Whether we're talking about paladins or not, is that players don't wear T-shirts with their alignment on them. They don't. Right. Totally good point. Although I think we should probably sell T-shirts with alignment on them. Well, now that at I least thought of that. Vince, not in our games, they don't. <laughs> okay. Right. But um, and you're right. Ooh. Paladins detect evil. But I've read a few different thoughts on what detecting evil actually means uh, for a paladin and and whether it means that you can actually detect somebody's alignment at all or whether it means they actually have to be having evil intent and so if you wanted to take DM Ron's approach to things of trying to you know make the evil character a little bit harder to discern you could take the idea of detect evil as being something that is on a gradient or on a spectrum. So, you know, if somebody is walking around with, with evil in their heart and they're, and they're plotting something terrible, the paladin would detect that, let's say. Yeah. But if they're particularly intelligent and wise, maybe even wisdom is more important than intelligence, and they're able to uh, mask their feelings or hide their true motives, um, that could be pretty fun. So I like I like DM Ryan's... I- idea i have to politely disagree 
Ooh. Your alignment is your alignment. I mean, a paladin has to stay lawful good. He can't mask his lawful goodness. How True. could someone else you know, mask their alignment regardless of their intelligence? I mean, well, that's... I think masking your lawful goodness, I mean, it's almost uh, trying to hide the fact that you're evil is a pretty evil thing to do. Trying to hide the fact that you're good isn't necessarily a good thing to do. Aha. Uh -huh. So I would give the evil person a little bit more room for deviousness in, in my campaign. Okay. So, but yeah, I'm is, okay with it. Is the detect evil always on? Do you have that role? Is it like an automatic thing? Does it flip on and off a switch? No. I believe yeah, I mean, the that, paladin that, has to concentrate doing it. Okay, Yeah, then. you've definitely got to try. So if nothing else, if nothing else, if the paladin never thinks to try to detect evil on his fellow so, party members. There's your role-playing opportunities. If someone who is evil walks into the party and pretends to be evil good. Evil character walks into a bar. He walks into a bar and he says, "Bartender, I need a drink." The bartender says, "Oh, never mind." Well, and walks here, into a, here the, I guess and we're walks he, into a bar. Ow! Ow! Why the long face? DM Ron kind of gets into this. Is if you look on in the player's handbook on page twenty-two under the Paladin, yes. it says detect evil at up to sixty-foot distance as often as desired, but only when the Paladin is concentrating on determining the presence of evil, and seeking to detect it in the right general direction. So, so it's kind of like a a ray, I guess, that he can detect. It's not it's Spidey like, Sense. It's like no. evil radar. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's evil radar detector. Right. So if someone walks in and portrays himself as not an evil person, the paladin might not think to detect evil. Maybe. I mean, obviously, if he walks into the uh, conversation with a bloody knife and blood all over him and saying, I'm a good person, the paladin's going to go, right. <laughs> I have a question with that. That's true. <laughs> yeah, actually, that would be a really cool idea, speaking about the T-shirts, Jason. Um, the role for initiative podcast, I stand on the chaotic evil side or something like there's a tagline <laughs> on the back. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Could you see that? Anyway, that's going to wrap those up for this week, and we'll go into our poll of the week. One of those electronic voting deals. So for the poll of the week, we have what type of player are you? So there's a couple options here on the website. And uh, the, it's right now, there's only a couple votes in. There's a lead of 50-50 mix for half roleplay, half hack and slash. 75% hack and slash, 25% roleplay. 25% hack and slash, 75% role play, 100% hack and slash, or all role play, baby. <laughs> what do you pick, Jason? Uh, okay, so I'm going to interpret uh, the word role play to include just thinking your way through puzzles and, and, and troubles and those types of things. I'm, it's spelled with an E. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, it, it's, it's hard for me to say because I, I don't really think that uh, I'm either so much as as just trying. I guess role play. Yeah. I, I, now that I'm talking it out loud, I'd probably say about seventy five percent role play. Seventy five twenty five for you. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm fifty fifty. You know I I like a balance of you know role playing my character and interaction with the other people in the party, what have you. But I also like you know 
kill the monsters and loot the bodies too. I mean, well, yeah, me too. I, I guess what I'm thinking is that if if I look at hack and slash as being just the part where I'm attacking with the sword or what or whatever, then the role play by default is everything else, which includes you know searching for traps, uh, you know trying okay. to work out the puzzles, running away from the monsters, all those kind of things. So in that sense, I would I would I would do that if that's the idea. Well, without looking into it too deep. <laughs> Let's just go. I'm going to pick the 75% roleplay, 25% hack and slash. Is how I generally play my games. Mm. And in case you're wondering, last week's poll of what creature to identify mostly with AD&D First Edition, the Kobolds One. won. Kobolds. Woo, Kobolds. They won 21 to 20 over dragons, trumping the yeah. dragons. But I think there was an error in the polling format. I demand a recount. You can demand a <laughs> recount because it looks like DM Jason voted twice. <laughs> Jason. Oh. Did I vote for different things? No, you voted for the Kobolds twice. <laughs> dun, dun, oh, then dun. It's a dead then it's a dead it's heat. It's a dead heat, actually, if you don't want to count that. I don't know how you manage it, Jason, but you voted twice according to the polls. No idea. Vote early and vote often. You did Damn vote you. often and early. <laughs> vote often for early. That's right. <laughs> All right, that'll wrap things up. Just go to the site, rfipodcast.com. Cast your vote in the poll of the week. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world. I'd like to find one with table manners. And what are you kidding me? I've spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. And now on to table manners. This week, table manners is going to focus... Oh, wow, I... Yeah. Table Manners will focus this week on a Stickler's Spotlight. I don't know why I couldn't say that this week. I think I know why. Oh. Because <laughs> we're focusing... the actual Table Manners thing. Alcohol and its effect Alcohol. on characters. <laughs> and players, for that matter. So what happens to a character that drinks? Jason. Uh, I don't actually know. I was, I was trying to flip <laughs> through here because I haven't run into this recently, so I haven't had to pull up a table or anything. Do you guys have it in front of you? Yes, we do. Yes, I do. Okay, actually, well, thanks I... for calling on me, then. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I did a little bit on this, uh, and it's come up in, in games in the past. Uh, it's actually alcohol and other drugs, the, this same table. That's in the DMG on page 82 and 83. And it gives uh, a listing of different effects mm -hmm. and what the state of intoxication is of the character, either slight, moderate, or great. And the effects will be on, like, your morale, uh, intelligence, wisdom, dex, charisma, your attack dice, your hit points. So... Depending on how intoxicated you are, will affect all these different abilities. Right. And I, I, the only thing with this is there are no hard and fast rules for the different types of alcohol and or drugs that would say this is a slight debilitating, this one is a moderate, or this is a greatly intoxicating drug or alcohol so i think you it, could go with a pretty straightforward thing i mean just number of drinks blood alcohol level you don't have to sit down and work it out too carefully you could just essentially uh set a rule based on the size of the character and the right. number of drinks they had you know you count count your lick count your shot of liquor is equivalent to a pint of beer and you should be good to go 
Wow. Yeah, that's how I kind of, in a way, I kind of do it too. And I think with DMs here, uh, uh, I guess according to rules, because they're so short in here, it's mm-hmm. really up to the DM mm-hmm. to determine with their best judgment how the characters, you know, uh, affected. Like you said, their 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 weight, um, maybe their their con. I I think Constitution's a huge factor in that. That's good. So, I yep. and that's how I usually play it. Is okay. the higher the con, the more resistant you are going to be to alcohol and other types of drugs. I mean, you yeah. might want to, uh, as as a DM, if you want to change it up for different races, so that, for example, dwarves have a higher tolerance than elves or something. Yeah, that's how might. I play it too. I uh, yeah. the way I do it, I just do a real simple way because I don't really want to keep track of all this stuff. But in case you want to know how I do it, I give the player the option of how long they want to drink. For instance, they could spend a minimum of one hour in the tavern drinking, and then they can tell me by hour increments how many hours they want to spend time in there. And for each yeah. hour, I will add various points and take off various points off of each statistic. So if they spend, say, two hours in the tavern drinking, and I'm talking about drinking, not just nursing a beer or something like, you know, mm-hmm. some people do. Mm-hmm. I an would ale, add, you mean? Don't you mean an ale? Uh, yes, excuse me, an ale or hard liquor. I don't determine distinguish between the two because I assume that people will drink ale and hard liquor at the same time. I would give them bonuses to strength per the hour. So two hours, two bonuses to strength. Uh, Their constitution would go up. Their intelligence and wisdom would drop at the same time as well. So that's Mm -hmm. how I handle those things. Okay. Yeah, I... I Okay, go ahead. Jason? No, well, anyways, I was just going to say, I think one of the the big questions is why are they drinking in the game? And if I... Your players are just saying we want to sit in the tavern. I, I, I would be more interested in if there's a situation where they have to be drinking in order to gain the trust of the people they're with or just to fit into the place they are or whatever sort of thing comes up in the game. Because mm-hmm. if they're just deciding how many drinks they're having in a tavern, that's something I remember doing when we were you know, kids. Because when we're 13, yeah. the idea of like, <laughs> I'm getting drunk was pretty exciting. Oh, boy. You know, like but... Like an eight-bit theater. Yeah, dead yeah. alewives. Those guys. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know what? Now that getting carded is more exciting than not being able to drink. You know, at our advanced age, um, you know, I don't find yeah. players quite going down that path so much. Well, so if intoxication comes up in the game, it usually has to have a bit more of a motive. Well, I had a character right. that actually had his whole role-playing persona based off of getting his character drunk before he went on adventures. So. Sort of a Robert Downey Jr. kind of thing. Or uh, <laughs> Captain Jack Sparrow type thing. Perfect. Robert yep. Downey Jr. <laughs> yeah, we could can... be, uh, what, what's it, from, from Black Books, maybe, you know, so. Kind of a Dylan Thomas kind of guy. Yeah, so, so you're right, that could that could yeah. fit in really well, and maybe uh, you you could use this. Yeah. Well, yeah. It might long-term effects uh, yeah. on, the, on the character as well. So, next bulletin point, how could you keep track of this as a DM? That's how I keep track of it when I what I just told you. How would you keep track of it, Nick? Gosh, um I guess I would keep track of it almost the same way Jason does it, is how many drinks have you had per hour? Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you've been there one hour and you had two drinks of a certain type, I would say, Well, that's probably a moderate, you know, effect on you and this is what's gonna happen to you. So and I would just keep track of it. They want to be there all night and have a good old time. Well, yes. Woo. 
things will get worse and worse over time. Yeah, if you're doing the whole time passes kind of thing, then you might say, well, you were there for five hours. We're not going to go into all the bits. Uh, five hours, you had eight drinks. You're not going to be very useful afterwards or something like that. Yeah. But, if you're, but if you're playing it out, I mean, if you're actually – if the time spent in the tavern is an integral part of what's occurring in, the, in that part of the adventure, then you know, if you want to just be ticking them off on a piece of paper or if you want to make it even easier on yourself – um, I'm starting to get more into the idea of keeping some sort of uh, counters around, like some poker chips or something, for these types of things. So you could say, you know, just just so you don't even have to get too um, strict about it or worrying about exact amounts of time. Just every now and then, as you're going through it, you could kind of think as the DM, I think you're done with your drink, and toss him another poker chip. And then, you know, you've been doing it for a bit, and now the guy, your player, has four chips in his hand because you figure he's been there long enough for four drinks. True. Okay, cool. Um, or oh, there's an or. There's an or. Another one that I I had never I hadn't thought about before you brought up this uh, topic for this show. Hmm. But since you mentioned you, um, this will be a segue maybe into the next thing. You know, do you allow your players to actually drink during the game? Yes, right. Okay. Maybe that's a good way to do it. Be like, okay, if we're going <laughs> in the tavern, let me go grab some beers for real. You know what? I've done something like that in my games. So, <laughs> I've well, had players drinking. So I, the, the last group I was in when I, I lived in actually in Connecticut, it was a whole bunch. It was me, one other guy, and four girls, and all they did was drink during the game. So that's why I brought up that issue. Yeah, well, I mean, I if everybody's having fun drinking during the yeah. game, that's great. You know, if that's what they want to do. Obviously, if yeah. you're twelve and thirteen playing this game, you're not going to be drinking. In order, this RFI right. podcast condone drinking and the use of alcohol at such a young and early age. I do. Uh, Start them young, Jason. <laughs> yeah, Jason? I mean, I think if you're over eight, you can drink. RFI does not condone the comments by Jason. <laughs> yes, those individual comments, but yes. um, and like, well, in, in my uh, my group, we're all you know in our thirties, and and some of us getting into our forties, and wow. so you know, I have one player; he brings a bottle of wine. Um, I'm kind of the beer connoisseur. I'll bring a few beers, and sometimes somebody will, you know, bring something else. So it's it's not only it, – and it, it just gives, goes with the whole kind of event being at the game, which because we only yeah. play like once a month anyway. It all depends so on how a, comfortable you are with your group, too. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't see a problem. I mean, personally, I don't usually uh, drink during games at all just because I don't drink that much. Um, or do anything else because just I'm over it. <laughs> you know, I'm, so I've been there. I've seen that movie. I know how it ends. Just so but, over it. But I, uh, um, yeah, I, um, yeah, I won't say what what happens at one of my games. I'll just, Aww. Well, oh, who cares? <laughs> I don't name I don't name these guys on the air or anything. True. But there is one game I play in which I'm the only player who isn't stoned the entire game. <laughs> wow. Breaking the laws at Jason's house. And you know what? I can't tell the difference with these guys. You know, they're they're playing yeah. the same. So I'm like, good. You know, that's cool. Jason's getting his butt kicked next time he plays. The point is that if everybody's sitting around a table having a good time, playing their characters the way they want to, then I don't really care. You know, if the players are drinking or what they're doing, just 
if you but but I will say this: if somebody were to play in a game and you know have a lot of drinks and make some really stupid decisions that gets their player character or gets their uh, character killed, okay, you're dead. You know what yeah, I mean, that's yeah. kind of it's no sort remorse. of a, yeah. it's sort of a self policing issue, isn't it? Yes, definitely, absolutely. <laughs> okay, cool. Tell us what you do during your game, how you handle alcohol effects, and how you handle your players, and if they drink in the game, RFI staff, gmail.com. And that'll throw us into the Kritja Ficha Theater. Creature Feature Theater, and this week we are talking about giants and all the different giant types that there are out there. Hey, they might be giants. Okay, they are, is the title of the segment. <laughs> okay, they might be giants. <laughs> Little birdhouse in your soul. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want you to sing. <laughs> you are a Johnny come lately with your TMBG, aren't you? Well, hey. <laughs> <laughs> At least he didn't start with Anna Ang or something. That's uh, true. Okay. This was a I Facebook request, but I couldn't find the uh, listener's name. I apologize for that. Oh, that's okay. And you <laughs> Thanks, know, <Nick>. I, <laughs> no problem. Don't sweat it. Yeah. Um, where to start with all the with all the different types of giants in AD and D? I mean, you have your, well, I guess your six plus one on the monster manual. You got What's the, cloud the plus gi- one. Um. I'll let you know. Yeah, oh, okay. giant, fire, frost, hill, stone, storm, and the titan. That's oh, plus okay. Yes, titan. Is that? But is, is a titan a true giant? It is considered a giant. Uh, it know? is considered one of the types of giants. But they yeah. aren't listed as a giant, so to speak. Though. Yeah, I know. Okay. So, titan, so we I, got could, six I consider them a giant class type uh, creature. That's fair. Okay. Wouldn't Titans be um, considered like the god of giants type thing? Well, um, no, not in a deities and demigods kind of way. No, no, okay. no, they don't. It, 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 in the monster manual, it doesn't really elaborate on that too much. But if, from what I remember, um, at least how I play them, uh, Titans mm-hmm. are the most feared of all the different giant types that I have. Well, I mean, you're not going to run into a titan uh, in no. just everyday situations. They're they're not normally on our pl- on our. They're not normally on the regular, you know, prime material plane. So right. Um, yeah, you don't run a lot, run into them all too often. Yeah. Um, right, so then, the- beyond the monster manual, we've got uh, five more in the other two books. That's correct. In the theme so. folio, we got the fog and the mountain giants. Mm-hmm. Fog. And fog are basically cousins of the cloud giants, and the mountain giants are, are cousins to the hill giants. Basically, they're just sub races of the of those different types. And uh, monster manual last... two gets a little hard to pronounce. Yes, yeah, <laughs> monster manual two. Yeah, you got the. I'm I'm usually the stickler on the pronunciations, and these I don't know what the where the words come from originally, so we can just sort of go wherever we go with this. Yeah, yeah on the Monster Manual too, you got the Fomorians, mm-hmm. the Fomorian giant, which is kind of like a. It's a mutant, in a way. Oh, they're nasty, ugly. 
Every yes, one of they're them yep. misshapen and they got you know they got eyes on their butts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, eyes on uh, their they butts. got the furbolg and the verbeak. The furby? <laughs> the verbolg yeah, and verbeak, don't you know? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds, they sound like muppets almost. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Here's furbolg and verbeak. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, now Don- before we go into all of them, I, I wanted yeah. to ask if uh, either if either of you guys ever run through the G series against the Giants. Yes. No. Okay, good, because I have not, <laughs> and so you'll be able to be a little bit more of an authority on how they actually play out in a, in a you know sanctioned pre-written kind of way. Well, I've used mm-hmm. Giants actually in a campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. Once before, my idea of the giant was that there was a village. The giants were attacking a village, and then so the village would stop the giant from attacking on a monthly basis. They would use a sacrifice on top of a hill every month of a small, a small villager, pretty much that they can overpower and put up there. It seemed like the whole King Kong type Ooh. thing. Mm-hmm. So I hit the players came with the town. They realized this was happening, so they decided it was their mission to destroy the giant, so no other person would be sacrificed. That's how I used it in one of my. What games. kind of giant did you have? Was it hill giant? Yes. Yeah, I mean that's good that's because when cool I think name. of when I think of the giant as the monster, you know, the bad guy, it's usually the hill yeah. giant that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. And but also- it's interesting because the giants, um, no. by and large, are not any more evil than good. If you go down through the, all the different ones that Nick was just stating, mm. you've got some in there like the storm giant, who is the most fearsome of all the giants. He's good. Yeah, he's chaotic good. You got it. Um, yeah. And you know, the fact that any of these are good doesn't necessarily make them uh, the friends to the humans. I think it's no. the furbog that uh, I'm trying to remember this because I didn't. I don't have it in front of me. But is I, I know the furbog is one that could be good, but uh, I think that's the giant that is very fearful of humans and t- sort of steers clear of people. Uh, I mean, they're not automatically aligned with humans or anything like that. Yeah, they. Um... They are human-looking, but they are um, – actually, in the description, it says here, these human-looking giants will not always greet strangers with open arms, but usually furbolgs will not try to kill them, unless mm-hmm. given provocation, of course. They yeah. do, however, enjoy appearing as little people and duping humans out of their treasure. That's right. So, They're the ones where one of their powers is alter self. Yes. They can so, alter self. Fool's gold and forget, and they could do uh, detect magic, mm-hmm. and um, they could do was it diminution? Uh, I can't say that. Diminution? Yeah, diminution. Diminution. They could yeah, make themselves. That, that's a pretty small. fun. You know, they, I, I, I haven't thought. Of, I've never brought a furball into a game, but now that mm. we're bringing it up, I like the idea of starting out as the, you know a little creature little leprechaun or something that suddenly by the time the great reveal comes through that would be yeah. a good that would be a really oh, yeah. good or just to you know maybe as a way of testing the uh, the villagers let's say that this furbolg is trying to decide whether or not to finally trust humans and instead of coming down as a giant where he figures well I'm a giant they're going to be nice to me because I can squish them uh, it comes down as something very vulnerable to see you know how do you treat somebody who's very weak right that could be sort of the test, nice little alignment test for the uh, for the players there. Ooh, now, yeah. I'm trying to remember, beyond the G series of modules, mm-hmm. has there been any other adventures that giants have been a part of? And there's only one I could think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in Lost Caverns of Zoicanth, 
mm-hmm. there are Fomorian giants in there. Really, I've never, I've never read through those at all. Mm-hmm. But so. I can't think of any other published modules off the top of my head where there's any other, mm. um, like, giants that might play a prominent role. Wasn't but that there... might be something good for our listeners to, to look up and let us know on, the, yeah. on Facebook or on the website. It, wasn't there a novel based around a giant from the, the D&D? Well, they novelized against the giants. I know that. Well, not that one. I know that one, but there was another one I remember reading. Maybe it wasn't a hmm. D and D novel. I remember reading something with giants. I can't remember the name. Now no, that you're speaking know. about that. Hmm. No, I can't really think of that. But it's interesting because hmm. you know, as you say, the giants come in at, at all different sizes. They're 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 mostly pretty human appearing. I mean, you have the fire giant that, right. uh, you know, we, which is kind of not. Here, here's something I really liked: is that the fire giant, if this was you know some game some game that had been written in the past couple of years where people are you know trying to make all their role playing games as bombastic and video game like as possible the fire giant would be made of fire and would have fire coming out of his eyes and everything else right. uh but the fire giant basically has red hair <laughs> yeah i think you just he's described he's the... more fire resistant basically and that's it jason i think you just yeah. described the world of warcraft version of a fire giant pretty much <laughs> yeah exactly right um so, but i like the fact that the fire giant you'll know him by his orange teeth and his red hair and um the fact that he's impervious to a lot of fire attacks and maybe where he's hanging out You're but, right but that's that's the main difference they're still very uh rational human-like creatures right and you know, when you, I mean, the, I guess the Fomorian is the only one that's really uh, incredibly uh, fantastic and repulsive in their case. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, like... you can have a giant that's, I mean, sure, you can have a 20 foot storm giant, but then you could have, aren't the Verbeegs like only about eight or nine feet tall? Yeah, Verbeeg, I believe, are the smallest of the, and you can almost consider them, they're really like ogre sized, if even that. They're like mm-hmm. anywhere between eight and a half to ten feet tall, the Verbeek. Mm-hmm. They're, and they're usually called, um, there's kind of a, a nickname for them there. But they. Um, Verbies? Yeah, uh, the <laughs> Verbeek. I'm trying to remember. Or they're Good usually called Verbies. human behemoths. Human okay. behemoths. Hmm. Yeah, human behemoths. There, there is one other type of giant. Um, that <laughs> I have to pull out my dragons again, but I was oh, really—I really? su- like was actually really surprised. Thing. I went back and I looked through the uh, you know good old dragon number one twelve, the ultimate article index. Is, I love that one. I, I, I keep that xeroxed and you know sitting out because yeah. it's a great place for me to flip to. Didn't you say you kept that on your office desk for like a week, just open so people can look at it? Just flipping he has through it, laminated. Laminated, yeah. No, but I do have it three-hole punched. <laughs> wow. But uh, I was really surprised that at least going through that in article index, almost nothing has been written in Dragon Magazine about giants. There's never been an ecology of written. So, um, hey, Todd, our yeah, our resident writer, Todd Hughes, might want to give that a crack because he's done some very good ecology of the measles yeah. and other things. Uh, but the one yeah. place I found – well. Way, way back, there was something on, you know, how heavy is my giant that talked a little bit about how much can they lift. And yeah. that's kind of useful. But uh, there was one, there's a, a really good creature catalog. Uh, it was in Dragon number 101. We've actually used a couple of the uh, monsters from there before. That's the creature catalog is where the um, automaton appeared. Yeah, the automaton, yep. yep. And where the creeping pit was written up. 
And in that same article, there is one more giant, and it's the sea giant. Oh, who is, you, oh that's right. Yeah, looks like a looks like a merman uh, in the in the picture that they've put in with it. And they say it's an evolutionary offshoot of giant kind which returned to the sea and readapted to a marine environment. Um, huh. Now, I mean, you can already find storm giants under the sea, um, so under but that's okay. Sea. They they call it a type one. It's a type one sea giant that lives on coastal grottos, or a type two that actually spends its entire life in the ocean, and the uh, type two actually has a tail and all those types of things. I just um, thought of a new type. Really I think I'm gonna. Well, I just thought of a new type, and I think I'm gonna write it up and put it up on the website. Sweet. So. Give us a little heads up on that. Um, well, what is it? Yes, give us a taste. Um, well, if I tell you, it'll <laughs> it'll give away the the whole thing. So, so what? So you're gonna write it up? We all know that no one's gonna steal well, it. I, I'm thinking like you know a swamp giant, something that lives in the swamps and marshes. Yeah, that's that would a good be pretty idea. cool. So yeah, write I think that I'm gonna up. come up with a swamp giant. Yeah, I think giants looking, are really under underexplored. Right. Because I was looking at this, um, the mountain giant out of Folio, and this kind of gave me an idea for another type of giant. Um, this mountain giant, it can summon and control other monsters. It can control um, sometimes uh, ogres or trolls or other hill giants. Mm-hmm. So um, even with this mountain giant, you can kind of build a whole layer around this one mountain giant with all these different mon- monsters that that uh, that serve it, that it's summoned. So, and uh, I'm kind of really thinking cool. an idea, maybe a swamp giant maybe too, that kind of something similar. Well, let me ask you guys one more thing about giants. Um, sure. Something that comes up in all of the different uh, descriptions of them is this idea of giants as being not particularly intelligent, but very cunning. Yeah. I mean, now, now some of them do have you know high intelligence, and I was kind of noticing as I was looking at the different ones that basically the more on the evil side of the spectrum they are, the lower their intelligence tends to be, and the uh, the higher the, the higher their intelligence, the closer they get to being you know good aligned. You know, yeah. On the whole, that's not a hard on the whole. Yeah. On the whole, um, so yeah, there are a couple like the storm giants and exceptional intelligence and i think the uh, furball can go as high as genius but mostly they're average to low so yeah, some are in a high category but not so few. not many so you're dming with giants how do you uh, how do you interpret the idea of a giant being not very intelligent but very cunning hmm well you know hmm, a cunning giant would actually set things up maybe Maybe act, mm-hmm. maybe act stupid, but not really be stupid. Right. You can still be uh, have a low intelligence creature, but mm-hmm. be cunning and de- devious. And I think this even goes beyond the the giants, but also low intelligent creatures themselves. Is I play them as basically uh, devious eight year old children. Mm-hmm. That's, oh, that's you know what? Idea. That's good. I think I think you guys nailed it. You both just said the word devious. I like that a lot. I think devious. Is I, I play them as devious, like eight, nine-year-old dysfunctional kids, and I've seen a few in my day. So <laughs> oh, I've seen a few in the in the in the schools here, and I well, tell my kids to stay away. From. It's all the so, drinking they do that we do not condone on this podcast. 
<laughs> yeah, but they're eight and nine years old. <laughs> they better not be drinking. No, these know. giants are much older, and we'll stick. With yeah, I'm talking about the. I kid, like you know. I, I I like that description. So so, a, an intelligent but cunning giant. You can think of it as devious. So <laughs> do, do we have any hooks for people out there to use for giants in their games? Like I gave one uh, about how the villagers had to give a sacrifice to the giant just to keep him happy each month. What would you guys try to do as your hook for your game, maybe? Off the yeah, top think, of your head. I'd, I'd like to pull that. I, I really like the idea of using that... Um, the King Kong effect Alter thing? self. Using that alter oh. self. And uh, yeah. kind of taking a, a twist on the old idea where the emperor goes into the city as dressed as a commoner to see how they treat him. Only this time it's a giant going among the people, you know, disguised as something very weak to see how he gets treated. And then oh. what they do is going to determine... Uh, you know what the giant would do next. Isn't that a reality show? Well, minus the giant thing. <laughs> yeah. The boss goes into the job and pretends to be one of the low people and find out what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I was just like I said before, the mountain giant. Just under his description of the different creatures it could summon, the the ogres, trolls, and other hill giants. You can build a whole lair around that mountain giant, and. Maybe his lairs, if he's a mountain giant, maybe he's near a, he's set up shop near a, a dwarven stronghold, and these trolls and hill giants are causing problems with the dwarves, and they need some help. And behind the whole thing is this one mountain giant. So I thought that was a pretty good, uh, cool way like of using it. that particular. And it's a monster out of the fiend folio. See, it can be useful, folks. <laughs> Who says it's not useful? Come on. No one ever said a that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We won't get into that, though. All right. That's a different show. <laughs> yeah. Tell us what you think and how you use Giants in your game. We like to hear that. I always like to hear good ideas, and so does the rest of the crew. RFI staff at gmail.com. The Dragon's Horde. So in the Dragon's Horde this week, we have a seemingly innocuous little magical item here, which uh, when I first saw it, I thought this ought to be a little bit of fun, and then realized that it opens up into a much wider world of possibilities. Uh, yeah. And what we have is the Amulet of the Plains. So uh, this, is, da, 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 this is an amulet which uh, enables, uh, it enables the... Uh, wearer, uh, uh, possessor, I guess, to mm -hmm. transport to uh, any of the upper levels of the outer planes. Once they get hang of it, yeah. Well, you know, once once they first get it, I mean, right away it's going to work, and you could be transported safely to any of the upper levels of the outer planes, but, you know, at the beginning, uh, your character doesn't necessarily know anything about them. I mean, unless for some this reason... Is this is a definition of safe, safe I'm not quite understand. Well, you <laughs> arrive safely. I'm not saying that you're safe after you get there. I'm saying arriving safe. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there's no know, so teleport arrive, errors or anything like that. Like, exactly. And, and, and because this is the thing is you're not really teleporting per se. Um, but, but so at the beginning, unless your character for some uh, in-game reason has extensive knowledge of the outer planes, it's going to be a random thing. It's going to be randomly going to one of the 16... Uh, different planes that are that are available in, in the outer planes, but um, as the character gets more uh, used to this, travels more, they can begin to actually control where they go and how they get there. Yeah. Um, but this brings up the whole much bigger point of 
okay, you've just had a character in your game receive an amulet that allows them to travel at will to the upper levels of the Outer Plains. Here we go to the Outer Plains. Great, what happens next? <laughs> right. And, yeah, mm. so it, this is good that we had Jeff Grubb on the uh, on the show a uh, few ep- episodes, issues ago, because uh, Jeff Grubb, of course, is the author of the amazingly helpful mm. book for this type of thing called The Manual of the Plains. I yep. love that book. Yep, love I got it. a copy. I love it. Like I told Jason before the show, that was one of the first books that I actually had bought with my own money as a kid. When I was, oh, yeah. And I bought it from Toys R Us for nine ninety eight. Funny thing you mentioned that, because I just got mine like four years ago. I think I went to Gen Con and I purchased it. It was like one of the last few AD&D books I had in my collection. I had to get it. It's 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 so good. I mean, we could do a whole show just on that, and maybe, uh, maybe sometime in the future we will. But good idea. Uh, so I was kind of going back and looking at the different ways that the planes are connected. And of course, there's a lot of different places you can look. Back in the player's handbook, right away, you've got that sort of famous uh, illustration of where's the prime material plane and how it's connected to the outer planes and the astral planes and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a whole lot of different diagrams attempting to explain the idea, of course, in the Manual of the Planes as well, which gets really complex because if you're talking about essentially interdimensional travel and Mm -hmm. trying to take these complex concepts and turn them into something that's not only uh, that can't, not only that you could draw in a two-dimensional sketch, but also that has some meaning in game terms uh, so that it you know, so you don't end up in metaphysical la-la land instead. Uh, and I thought what was the most useful – well, l- let me kind of back up a little bit. Okay. I think most of our uh, audience that, that's uh, you know really into the game is going to know the basics of it, but I'll, I'll kind of revisit it for a moment. Well, You've got your prime material. No, yes? Why don't we revisit the rolling system for this? Because I know a lot of new players will look at this and go, huh? Okay. Yeah, let's start there. So yeah. you take a D6. You roll your D6, and if you roll 1 to 3, you don't add anything to it. You just keep keep the roll as it is. If you roll... I it, rolled a 5. All right, so you would add 12 to a D12. Okay. So you would take a D12, roll it, and add 12 to it. I rolled a 3. 15. I'm going to Gehenna. You're going to Gehenna. That's how that would work. Nice. So basically, when you roll a one to you roll a d6, if it's one to three, you don't add anything to it. You just take the roll as is. If you roll a four through a six, you take a twelve sided die and add twelve to your roll. That's how you get the upper ones. And Jason, why don't you noticed, take a roll on that? Let's see where you go. I noticed uh, on the you got a roll for me. I don't have my dice in front uh, of me. <laughs> well, I noticed on the table that eleven uh, and I'm, twelve is a abyss. Sixteen and seventeen is nine hells. So <laughs> now, right, you know what? I'm gonna. I want to roll for myself. I, I, I got them here. <laughs> okay. So let's see. Roll uh, a six. All right. So I've got the amulet of planes, and I give it a go. And I've rolled a four. So then now roll a d12. And add twelve to it. And add twelve to your results. Okay. So now I grab a d12, and uh, there we go. Your d12 cries itself to sleep, but not now. <laughs> <laughs> And I rolled... You guys have seen that shirt, right? Yes. And I've rolled a 12. Uh, so 24, you got, then. Oh, so you got one of the prime material planes, then. All right. Now, this is actually... I, I After reading through the manual of the planes, which ah. is written later, I might actually do it differently. But um, 
let's start with the prime material planes since, okay. since we rolled that up. Okay. So the prime material plane isn't just one. It's all the different sort of interdimensional travel. So if you've been playing a campaign where you had your characters fall into, you know, a boot hill world or a gamma world or something like that, that would be traveling from one prime material plane to another. Right. Meaning that they all have the same physics, time flows the same way. Uh, it's essentially the universe as you know it, the planet as you know it. It's just a different time and a different rules and those types of things. Yeah. So that's it, even the. Uh, I was going to say even the chart says you can um, alternately use ethereal, astral, or an alternate prime material plane kind of thing. Too. Ooh, now ethereal and astral <laughs> that gets a little bit hard. Um, yes. Yeah. So so you've got your prime material planes and and the the. Uh, outer, uh, if, if you think of it as a ring, I mean, just yeah. for, in terms of, of uh, placing it in something that can be looked at in two dimensions, if you think of it as a ring, then you've got uh, the um, outer planes out around that with sort of hubs sticking out towards it, and you have to pass through the astral plane to reach the outer planes, and you have the ethereal plane that uh, permeates all these things within. And mm -hmm. I, I have to confess that I have you know, not really fully gathered all the things in manual of planes that come into playing in the ethereal plane or places where things are just completely massively different. Um, but there is a really good schematic that's on page 7 of the manual of the planes, and oh, this makes okay. it a little bit easier. So instead of worrying so much about trying to envision the actual physical location, so to speak, yeah. of these different planes, which could make your brain explode anyways, <laughs> this nice little schematic just – lays it out and says, okay, just in terms of how can you get from one to the other, how do you have to get through? And this is what I think is the most uh, relevant to what we're looking at right now. And that's from the prime material plane. Um, the only way to get to the outer planes, there's only two ways to do it. It's either using a special method of travel, like conduits that take you directly to the outer planes, or you're going to have to, in some way or another, travel through the astral plane because that's how the prime material plane is actually connected to these outer rings of planes. Hmm. And there's, uh, there's there's three ways that they lay it out in there, and they specifically, or Jeff, I shouldn't say they, really he, Jeff, specifically right. addressed the amulet of the planes, which was very yeah. helpful. So you've got three things you could be doing. Conduits, those are like wormholes or, 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 or gates. So yeah. the, uh, the characters... Um, if they're able to find a wormhole, then it will take them directly into the outer planes one round. They can take all their things with them. That's great. There's another way. It's uh, color pools, which are you know actually traveling through the astral plane. And I won't go into those because they're not relevant to this uh, magical item. Mm. But then spell effects. And this is um, anything like the cleric's sort of high-level plane shift. And yeah. the amulet of the planes essentially is a way of replicating these uh, cleric, these other types of spells. Mm -hmm. And in these cases, what the uh, player has to do, if they're familiar with where they're trying to go, is to visualize, and so this is where the rules get good, because if we're, if we're talking about the first time you use it, okay, we roll, we see which one you go to, and now we have to figure out what happens, but right. if your character, if your player really you know, holds on to this amulet and starts making it a regular thing, they're going to want to say... I'm specifically going to a certain place. Right. They could do right. that. They get more proficient after, over time, right? Yes. Yeah. 
Exactly. Um, so what they're able to do is to visualize a place that they've been and say, I'm trying, let's say that uh, the player specifically starts uh, having, you know, going back and forth to Olympus, let's say, mm-hmm. okay. um, and starts visualizing a place in Olympus and wants to go there, then they can get there. But they still have to roll because uh, there's a chance, even though they're visualizing, that the uh, caster isn't going to be able to be totally accurate. And the, uh, the the chart that Jeff laid out in here was rolling on a on a, a percentile die. You've got a twenty percent chance of getting within a hundred yards of where you were actually visualizing. Uh, well, from there on, it gets a little bit worse. From twenty one to sixty, uh, you're somewhere within ten miles. Wow. Of where the caster, <laughs> yeah, um, and that's it's a huge one, air, uh, uh, margin big, there. But but you could still march your way over to where you're trying to go. Um, from 61 to 90, you're within 100 miles of where you meant to be, hopefully wow. not in the ocean. Um, and that last 10% from 91 to a double zero means that the caster is within – I'm going to actually read this exactly because I like the way he wrote it. Within 1,000 miles of the area visualized and usually in the realm of another powerful extraplanar being. Uh-oh. Hey, at least you hit the right plane. Let's see. Yes, it probably goes, hey, at least you hit the right plane. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, but here, like, you have a thing, it's like, oh, I want to go hang out with Aphrodite, and next thing he knows, he's hanging out with Hades. Ooh. Oops. Well, <laughs> this would be on the same plane, though. So Aphrodite and Hades would actually be on different outer planes. Oh, you just ruined that whole thing. Okay. Yeah, you just ruined that. You could be going to hang out with Aphrodite, and you end up hanging out with Zeus, who treats you the way that he does some of the other a- farm animals that he runs into. You wouldn't like that too much. Jason. Okay, point taken. That would work. <laughs> well, let's but, do- but this, so, so this gets into a whole other thing that it's worth going back and uh, kind of reading through how the outer planes work. Well, Most of them, it's kind of what you ex- – you know, it's, your, your time is flowing at the same rate that it flows in the prime material plane. That's okay. Your physics are going to work the same way. But one of the things that was uh, surprising to me to go back and see, I had forgotten about this idea of gravity fields. Right. So you have these okay. different areas within the plane, these different interlayer, um, interplanar areas that are basically controlled by some powerful being. So somebody that on the prime material plane would be considered a, a deity. You know, each one has a certain sphere of influence. And as you're getting close to the edge of one and you move over to the next one, suddenly the gravity uh, flips around because it's always pointing at some center that's based on whatever that particular being has decided is their center of influence. Well, let's do what we normally do, Jason. Interrupt you for a minute here. Why don't we all roll and see what we get on the plane? Because I want to do one of those quick rolls, see where I would end up. (laughs) Let's just say I'm sitting there concentrating and I want to go to Nirvana and see Kurt Cobain. Ha ha, lame joke, I know. Dog. (laughs) And I rolled a 58. Okay, so you are with, not too bad, you're within 10 miles of uh, Kurt Cobain's house. Sweet. (laughs) So, So, I mean, at this point, you would be able to march on over. I want to hang with Aphrodite. Okay, go for it. (laughs) 72. Crap. So you're uh, – so as the DM, I've got a chance to put you within 100 miles. And I could be nice and I could actually roll and see if, you know, on a D100 how close you are. Um, but I'm not going to be nice. I'm going to put you <laughs> 99 miles away from where you meant to be. Uh-huh. Um, but not close enough to another being. 
Um, but but the point is that you're now going to have this whole adventure of trying to to get over to them. True. And yeah, this only but, teleports, or I mean, not teleports, but this transports just the bearer of the amulet, correct? Yeah. Um, I think it is the just yeah, it's just the individual that yeah. that is possessing the device. Why? Well, okay. What about if it, if other people are touching the bearer? Would you allow that? You know, maybe? that gets into the whole kind of. It's, that's the same thing that comes up with teleport. You know, well, what if we all hold on to him when he teleports? Well, if we can't hold on to him, how can he hold on to his sword? With I, all I hands. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think that that kind of depends on how your game is going. If you have a need as a DM to be able to get a whole party over into another plane, then just go ahead and let everybody grab onto the one. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I don't think there's a need to be too much of a stickler about that. Um, but but once you get him into it, the other thing I started thinking about is, all right, so you get over to the other plane, and now you're there with Aphrodite. Or you're 100 miles away, but you can make your way to Aphrodite eventually. And you've brought your whole party with you because they all locked arms and sang We Are the World, and then we you went, the we, we went there. Um, yeah, please don't sing that. And then, all right, you get separated from your party. You're the one with the amulet. And uh, they don't know how to find you, and dun, dun, let's. Dun. How are they going to get back to the prime material Ooh. plane? That's Sucks. a whole adventure in itself. <laughs> that's a good yeah, thing so about that's... the planes. Even, putting Jeff's book aside, the mm-hmm. planes are not hard written in stone, so you can make the planes be whatever you want them to be. Yeah, yep. you could, but I mean, it's a lot more fun to me if you actually have some uh, geography, nah. so to speak. Uh, you know, Some planography. <laughs> I actually would like, I like the fact that I don't know what the planes look like other than Jeff's book, and I can mm-hmm. just say, well, this is here, this is there, and I can make my own little evil, devious things happen there. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's absolutely. why his book is so good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he it, actually he has a great bit in the intro where he says, you know, he's going through and trying to figure out one thing or another, and he finally, when he couldn't find a source for things, he used the grand dungeon master tradition. He made it up. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it. You know, so you can too. So um, basically, this is a personal TARDIS. Could be, could yeah. be. Actually, that that's one thing I want to investigate a little bit more because the whole idea here of going between the prime material planes and the outer planes is that somehow or another you're traveling through the astral plane to get there. And if you actually interact too much with it, since you mentioned the TARDIS, time becomes a big issue. Because the astral plane, according to the Manual of the Planes, at least, and this is an officially published book, so I'd like to go by it, okay. um, 365,000 rounds pass for every one perceived round of time uh, to the character. So, Holy shnikes. Yeah, so that's, a, that's 100. I think it, I'd have to go look at the page, but I think it said that would be 170 days for every one minute. Of uh, you know of of perceived time. So if you need to put a character, let's say you have a character who's been poisoned on the prime material plane, and you need them to be safe for a while, you could pop them off to the astral plane, and you and they're essentially in stasis yeah, because yeah. it's going to take you know 170 days. You can you can reach for them 170 days later, and only one minute has passed for them. Um, huh. But of course, if you stay in the astral plane for I don't know, let's say couple of hours now you might run into the githyanki <laughs> you might would you guys consider like other 
campaign settings planes as well. If you're obviously we know there's other campaign settings in first edition, would you guys use those as other planes as well? Well, yeah, um, I mean, that, that's a good for, for the if you rolled um, going to a different prime material plane. Right. I I, I consider campaign setting. Like, would you guys? Or, consider... Are you talking about completely different games? Or are you just saying, like, as in Forgotten Realms versus yeah. Greyhawk? Forgotten Realms, Dragonlands, or even Ravenloft, for that matter. Sure, um, why not? For me, yeah. I, I like, we're just talking first edition. I would say, like, World of Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, and I guess Dragonlands fits into this, too. I I would say there are different worlds in the same prime material plane. I, I only brought up the issue because the edition that shall not be named actually published an updated manual of the planes, and they included Ravenloft as one of the planes of existence. So, yeah, no, like the plane you, you know what? Now that you say that, yeah, I think I like Nick's approach better, which is they're different worlds, they're different planes, yeah, I, I, be in different solar systems. That's how I kind of perceived it too. Okay, just yeah. everybody has their own opinion, and I wanted to hear what you guys thought. So the Amulet of the Planes, I guess the point is that if you're going to introduce it into a game, be prepared. do a lot of research before you do, because your yeah. players are going to be suddenly saying, we're, hi- we're heading for Gehenna, what happens? Come yeah. on, what I, happens? I, I still picture this thing when someone uses it, you hear the thrumming of the TARDIS in the background. <laughs> I don't know that's why. A good, that's a good sound effect. I think I'd like to have that around. I, I, I always yeah. think of that. Every time I think of the Amulet planes when they transport, I think of that Star Trek sound when they go boom like that. <laughs> I like the TARDIS. I like sound. Doctor I Who like better that. than Star Trek, so I'm gonna yeah. go with the TARDIS sound. Yeah. Boo. Yeah. Let's see what kind of letters we get from that. Fine. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've discussed the uh, Amulet of the planes, and we should probably save the rest of it for another future show because we could do a whole show based upon it, like Jason said. So. Yeah, we should. We should. Well, we'll think about that in the future. Maybe we'll have Jeff yeah. come back on the show, and we'll talk about that a little bit with Jeff, because he might want to talk about the planes. Capital really idea, Jeff. Right, anyway, so let's uh, head over into the uh, end of the show. Well, guys, I guess that's going to wrap up our show for this week. This is the end. This is the end, my friend. Oh, boy. <laughs> yes, Jim Morrison, thank you. <laughs> that was Nick's interpretation. I yeah. thought it was Val Kilmer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look like him. I don't even have his paycheck. So <laughs> I just realized that your uh, your um, avatar—it's Phineas, right? Yeah, Phineas. You betcha. Phineas your Phineas avatar looks kind of like Val Kilmer. Yeah. Now that I think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Val Kilmer in Phineas Fingers, the Unleashed. <laughs> the Unleashed. Yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We'll be back next week with another exciting and fabulous show. Don't forget to call our voicemail at 206-279-3272 and comment on the Facebook site for the contest. Yeah, win yourself a T-shirt. Win yourself a T-shirt that Jason will ship to you personally by driving. No, I'm kidding. He will send it in the mail. <laughs> yeah, they come in. Now they Remember, they come in different sizes, chaotic good, chaotic neutral. No. no. That would be and don't forget, order your T-shirts for a con season so we can see you at Gen Con and Origins, and we'll have ours too, and we'll shake hands and all that good stuff. Yeah, wow. I said that's a good one. If we see anybody with a T-shirt, we should definitely go up and uh, get them to say hi on the air so they can shout hi, Mom, or whatever. Yeah, send us your pictures. Take pictures of you with your T-shirt. 
Yeah, I mean, if you go to your local gaming shop and you want to take a picture with the local gaming shop guy and send it in with the T-shirt or maybe even a sign that says, I listen to the RFI podcast, we'll post it up on the site. That'd be, yeah, cool, that'd be yeah. really good. I'd like to promote people's local gaming shops, too. So please, folks, uh, you know, write in or call in and uh, tell us something about your gaming shop if they carry any Here we go. old stuff. In fact, the next person that, that does that, that sends in a picture of their local gaming shop, maybe with the guy in the shop or something with them with them in the picture, with a little sign that says, I listen to the RFI podcast, we'll, we'll send it on the air and we'll talk a little bit about it. Yeah. So we got two things in one going on. Give us a shout-out. Vote in the poll. This is DM Vince signing off for the crew of Jason and Nick, NPC Jason and DM Nick. Keep it original. <laughs> keep it old school. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Later, everybody. Roll for initiative. All right, so in the Dragon's Horde this week, we have a uh, seemingly innocuous little magical item that was seemed innocuous. Jason?